Welcome to the Living Out Podcast, helping people, churches and society talk about faith and sexuality. Hello and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Anne Whitten and I'm joined uh, this time round by Andy Robinson. Um, before we get on with the business of this week's show, I've got a listener shout out that I wanted to do. We've never done this before on the podcast, uh, but I bumped into my friend Andy recently and he asked for a shout out. So this one goes out to Shandy Andy in London. It was really great uh, to see you the other day and I'm really glad that you enjoy the podcast. Uh, do tell all your friends. Um, and hopefully we'll get loads more listeners who want shout outs. Uh, obviously, we think this podcast is great too, uh, but there are lots of others that I enjoy as well. Um, one of the ones I'm particularly loving at the moment is called Cautionary Tales by uh, Tim Harford. And it's basically the, the true stories of historic catastrophes, errors and fiascos. So I listened to an episode the other day on the uh, disastrous launch of the Sinclair C5, which made me chuckle a lot. Um so I was wondering, Andy, apart from this podcast, obviously, uh, what is your favourite podcast and why? Well, I should say I'm really liking our move towards sort of local radio and being really cheesy with shout-outs. But, um, <laughs> we'll have competitions soon, you know. <laughs> um, to be honest, the question about podcasts makes me sound really boring because I, I was going through my library and it's either politics or snooker. So, uh, oh so well, Snooker's all right. Yeah, so I've got New Statesman, Spectator. I, to be honest, I'm fairly balanced, so some from the right, some from the left, but... To be honest, none of this is selling me as a really interesting person. So I think I should just bail out to my favourite podcast conversation. Yeah, you've definitely not converted me to any of those. Uh, maybe this snooker one. I don't know. Uh, this is our um, second Meet the Author series. And until now, we've never actually got round to interviewing one of our most prolific writers, our very own Ed Shaw. So I'm very delighted to welcome Ed Shaw to the show. Hello. Hello. I wondered when I was going to be invited. I've been I've been waiting years, years <laughs> for this invitation, and it's finally come through. Yeah, you had to sort of prove yourself as a host first. Um, <laughs> so, have you got any podcasts that you could recommend? Preferably not political ones. Um, I love the rest is history um, mm. with Dominic Sandbrook, uh, Tom Holland. Uh, yeah, a brilliant show. I love spending time with them, and particularly, I was hooked on them first through listening to their podcast on the Falklands War, where the Falklands War was my first set of memory oh, as a my. child. And they, they really, their episodes on the Falklands War are absolutely fantastic, both because of the history, but also just because of their personality. They just, they just latch onto very funny little details, and you, you just laugh with them, as as people do with us. I mean, you know, so that's why I like them. Rest is history. <laughs> There we go, making war funny. Great. So, Ed, we've covered lots in these podcasts as we've taught you, but we've probably never heard your story. So do you want to tell us a little bit of your story when you first experienced same-sex attraction or was aware of that as an issue for you and how that connected with being a Christian? No. <laughs> I oh, know. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, sorry. I, yeah. I'm on the podcast to um, actually tell. You. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, yeah. Living out has been all about telling stories. Um, let me think. So I was, uh, you know, I I come from a Christian background. Um, I was a Christian from well, basically as long as I can remember. 
Um, and you know, trust in Jesus, love Jesus, knew that Jesus loved me from, but that's just been part of the furniture of my life. Wonderfully, every you know, from 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 the year dot really, it's just knowing that God in Christ loves me, um, and um, had a very happy at home but up upbringing, and you know, was was sort of I always describe myself, particularly as a teenager, as the sort of the perfect teenage Christian. You know, from my parents' points of view, I was you know I was running this Christian union at school, and I was going on Christian camps in the summer, and I was reading the Bible, and I was praying, and I was you know reading Christian books. I sort of ticked every box. Um, I was the perfect Christian teenager, and yet at the same time, as I became a teenager and as sexual feelings came coming came into play, I was finding myself drawn to the guys or some of the guys I was growing up with. Now, I I didn't think at the time, oh, I'm same sex attracted. It actually took me quite a while to notice what was happening, um, but just became just quite preoccupied with some of the guys that I was growing up with, and you know their personalities and their looks, and they mesmerised me. And I found myself thinking about them, and I found myself as you know things like sexual fantasy came into play, not fantasising about people of the opposite sex, but fantasising about people of the same sex. And I, you know, as a teenager, I that sort of happened, and I sort of knew it was wrong, but I also quite enjoyed it. Um, and therefore, I just spent a lot of my teenage years just um, struggling with those feelings and those emotions and going to God and saying sorry and feeling bad while at the same time presenting as the perfect teenager. And that just brought a lot of sort of conflict and angst into my life. But it was all very much on the inside and it certainly wasn't shared with anybody. You know, we talk about the 1990s, you know, to say... I'm gay or to say I experienced same-sex attraction was just not the done thing. It would have been suicide, social suicide in school. And I also thought it would be a phase. The one helpful thing I've been told about sexuality as a teenager, and actually pre-being a teenager, was that sometimes people have an experience of same-sex attraction as a teenager in puberty, but it's just a phase and you grow out of it. And so from my teenage years, I thought... This is a f- funny phase. I know I shouldn't really be feeling these things, but one day soon I'll grow out of it. And so I'm assuming you're still in this phase that you might grow out of at, at some point. How how did you cope with the the reality that this wasn't a phase? How did what did you learn spiritually from that period? Would you say? Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I. I thought it was a phase until I was about, well, probably in my mid-late 20s when I suddenly woke up to the fact that puberty had happened and I was still, I was still same-sex attracted and it wasn't going to go away. And I, I, that was, it didn't provoke any sort of particular crisis, but I can just, I can remember a growing sense of this hasn't changed. I thought it was, I thought it was going to change. What is the new plan? <laughs> You know, because that the plan had been one day it would go away and I would find somebody the opposite sex, get married, settle down, as all my friends had already or, or, or were doing in our mid to late 20s. And I suddenly realised that this plan was not working out and I needed to think through what it would be like to live as a single person for the rest of my life and how I was going to do that and how I was going to cope with a life where so often how I was doing as a Christian was completely tied up with how I was doing in resisting sexual temptation and, and a sexual attraction to the opposite to the same sex 
And I just got myself into a sort of, you know, somebody would ask me, how are you doing as a Christian? You know, a good Christian friend would ask me that. And, and I'd be thinking immediately, not actually about, you know, whether I was involved in the local church or whether I was praying and trusting in Jesus for the hard things in life and whether I was, you know, really enjoying meditating on God's word. But I'd be immediately thinking, how much, how's same-sex attraction going? That was the answer to that question. And that just became a bit of a downward spiral. And I knew mid to late 20s that something needed to change. So what did change? How how have you come to a, a different place on this? Well, what changed was in some ways uh, some some Christian friends forcing the truth out of me. I mean, in a very loving Christian way, we were a group of uh, ministers who had started to meet up twice a year and were supposed to be helping each other become more and more like Jesus. And I would often at this group talk about, you know, how I struggled with sexual temptation and I find it hard being single and I was sometimes lonely. And, you know, there was one session when they basically all said to me, you should be getting married to somebody of the opposite sex. That's what you should be doing. That's that's God's solution to your problems. And I can remember sitting there squirming and thinking, oh, that's not really... The... And basically they kept on... I was backed into a corner until I had to say... It's because I fancy guys. And I can remember, I remember sort of saying that and thinking, this is going to be the end of the friendship. This is going to be the end of time in ministry. This is going to be the end. And they were just beautifully different to what I expected. And they just surrounded me, love, asked the right questions. And, you know, encouraged me to begin to tell more people so I could get the support that I needed. And encouraged me to just apply the gospel of grace uh, to my experiences rather than, you know, rather than that sort of trying to fake it as the perfect Christian, which is what I'd been doing. That'd be my strategy up to that point. Fake it as the perfect Christian and hope it would go away. And from that point onwards, I was recognising it probably wouldn't go away and I just needed to actually be a real Christian. And they helped me do that. So we knew each other uh, at the stage where various friends of ours knew about our our sexuality but neither of us was very public uh, about it um and i think you went first actually you you began to talk more publicly to to church and so on how was that process how did you you go about that yeah i think you know a few years after i began to tell friends in fact quite a few years after i began to tell friends um i decided in conversation with yeah other same sex attractive ministers and also uh, local uh, friends and the leadership of the church I was part of here in Bristol decided it would be really helpful for me to go public a little bit for my sake, but actually most of all for the sake of others like me, like us. And so we did, but we wanted to do it in a low key way. So we just did it at a church prayer meeting. Um, and it was just a stage when there was some political issue uh, in the Church of England going on and there was two other people in the church family who were involved in discussions within the Anglican Church. And actually, I think it was around the time of the introduction of same-sex marriage and there was somebody else in the church who'd been uh, sort of inputting in that debate. And so the three of us were interviewed at the front about issues around sexuality. And part of what I shared during that interview was that I was same-sex attracted or, or, or gay myself. And um, it was a nice low-key way of doing it. It was also, it sort of helped raise the profile of our church prayer meeting because people started to think miss it and you miss out on quite a bit of big news you know it's not every day when somebody on the staff of our church comes out so people are a little bit were you there on sunday um and um that's how we did it in a sort of nice low-key way and you know in the company of good friends 
And how did you find that process? How did the church respond? Was that encouraging for you, discouraging? How was that? Oh, amazingly encouraging. I thought that I thought that being open and honest about something I struggled with would be a sort of well, even if it wouldn't be a formal disqualification of ministry, I, I, I feared that people would think, oh, my goodness, Ed's got big problems. I'm no longer going to share my problems with him. When, of course, actually the opposite was the case. Um, be open about something you struggle with and loads of other people uh, want to come and talk to you about things they struggle with, which, which are similar, or things they struggle with, which are actually really different. But you shared your brokenness, they're willing to share their brokenness with you too. And that was one of the most moving experiences. Well, then and actually ever since has been people's people's response has been to trust me with big things in their life because I've trusted them with something quite big in my life. Mm. And it was not long after you started to talk to church family in Bristol that living out it emerged. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and a little about a little bit about your current role with Living Out? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the whole point of being public um, was so that we could go, so we could start the Living Out website. And I didn't want well, anybody that <laughs> knew and loved me to sort of discover about my sexuality on a video on the internet. And so I had, sort of was busy telling people before we launched Living Out itself in 2013. And um, the whole point of that was to... Yeah, to be a voice for people who we felt had been silenced, which was people like us who are same-sex attracted but wanting to live in the light of what Scripture teaches about sex and relationships and how that's good for us as well as good for everybody else. And yeah, so there are a group of us meeting, wanting to get our stories out there, wanting to break the silence, wanting to help others, and coming out was was part of doing that and was a preparation for launching uh, the website itself. And our intention when we first launched the website was to sort of launch a website, put some films up and then sort of basically walk away. I mean, that's what we thought. <laughs> and we hadn't really, we just hadn't really thought through the consequences of that, which has been, you know, a huge amount of really encouraging ministry and opportunities to do a whole host of things in a whole host of different contexts. And you know, since then, Living Out has become a proper organisation. We're a charity. We have staff, and my role on the staff team is to, yeah, is to is to look out look out for others. And um, well, part of me think you know to do quite a lot of the boring stuff like raising money and um, making sure that um, our structures work and our policies are in place. And there are a number of people that help me on that, including our trustees and our amazing operations and admin team. But I also do get to do some other fun things too, like doing podcasts and writing the odd article every so often, <laughs> once in a blue moon, says Anne Witten. Not often enough. Not often enough. <laughs> and a few other things like that too. Well, to break the uh, the normal pattern of this podcast, I know we as a team are really grateful for, for all that you do. That's the one nice thing we'll say to Ed on this podcast for the next year. Um <laughs> But we've just covered, uh, I don't know, about 30 years of your life there, I guess. Um, do you want to tell us, you know, as you, you look back, if you were sort of talking to somebody in your position who was, say, a, a younger Christian struggling with sexuality, what would be the main lessons you've learned from the last 25, 30 years that you would want to pass on to them? I suppose two things. One would just be the practical. Do talk to other people. Do find people you can trust. Don't keep it a state secret. It's really helpful to share your experiences with others and to get support and prayer and um, to benefit from other people's 
yeah, other people's love, really. Um, so that that would be my first thing. And the second thing, the really helpful thing for me is being to see the good in my same-sex attraction, the good things that God has brought out of it, and also just to sort of process uh, my desire for beauty and my, you know, my my attractions to other people in a good godly way um, and just learning how to do that very slowly and very painfully has been really, really helpful uh, has made a huge amount of difference to my life. Just to let you know that the Living Out team is coming to Reading on Saturday the 12th of November. This is your chance to explore sexuality in our culture, the biblical picture and how we can support same-sex attracted Christians in our churches. You can find out more and book a place at livingout.org events. So Ed, uh, you've written quite a lot for the uh, Living Out website over the years. Uh, yeah, some would say not quite, not quite enough. I know you've got plenty on your intro. <laughs> um, obviously, we can't talk about everything, but I wanted to focus on uh, two of the pieces that you've written. The first is an article called "What's Wrong with a Permanent, Faithful, Stable Same-Sex Relationship." Um, I think I'm particularly interested in this because this is something that I've wrestled with um, over the years. Um, and it's something that I get asked uh, a lot by other people as well. Uh, surely if two adults love each other, there can't be anything wrong with a sexual relationship, can there? Um, where's the harm in that? Well, it turns out I wrote this article about 10 years ago. So <laughs> it's, when, when you sort of said you might, be, you might mention it, I was a little bit, oh my goodness, what did I say? Um, I have thankfully got it in, in front of me here on the website. And uh, I, I wrote it because... Obviously, one of the realities is of a lot of same-sex uh, relationships is that there is a lot of good in them. And we look at that good mm-hmm. and we look at the quality of the friendship and the care for each other. And there's so much to admire. There's so much that, that is commended um, in Scripture about the way people are loving each other and, and sacrificially uh, loving each other. And you know, for Christians to come along to a, a same-sex uh, relationship that's permanent and faithful and stable, a same-sex marriage, and say it's wrong just seems to be well, just crazy to most people and cruel to a lot of people. And I was in the article just wanting to, to recognise that and recognise that, that gut response and then try and explain why as Christians we're saying a same-sex sexual relationship is wrong or better put, is not best for the people involved. Mm. Because, you know, we, when the Bible says, where the God says, our loving God says something is wrong, he's not in the business of ruining people's lives. He's in the business of helping us live life uh, best in the best way possible. And so uh, one of the things I was wanting to sort of touch on in that article is just to sort of point on how... From God's point of view, he, he he set up sex to be enjoyed in a unity in difference. Um, men and women are equal. There's so many similarities, but they are different. And in particular, they're different um, in uh, their bodies and in their sexual organs and in how they're wired sexually. And that difference is really important in a sexual relationship. It makes sexual relationships hard and tricky sometimes. But actually, that difference and the challenges that difference uh, brings are designed by God to make something beautiful and to make sex really satisfying for a man and woman coming together, uniting in their difference in a permanent, faithful, stable relationship. 
And one of the things I've discovered in my reading around gay relationships in particular is how often that lack of difference, two men, two women coming together in a sexual union, is problematic. Because at one level, yes, they both understand each other better because there's a similar experience. They have similar body. They have the same sort of bodies. They're wired in, in, in a very similar way. But actually, that 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 similarity gets in the way of, of of a depth to their sexual relationship, and often stops it lasting and satisfying people long term. And I haven't found that out myself through being in a same sex relationship, but I've read, I've discovered that by reading a, a lot of secular. Uh, voices speaking about some of the challenges that come in same-sex sexual relationships and actually saying turns out sexual difference matters and when it's two men or when it's two women there's something missing um uh, there's something lacking um then the sort of relationship when it's actually a union indifference between a man and a woman and i found that personally helpful Mm. um, as i struggled uh, not to be in a same-sex a relationship. I've also found it helpful to share with people I do know who've been in a same-sex relationship and are trying to work out why from a Christian worldview it's problematic. It's not about God wanting to ruin people's sex lives. It's about God wanting people to have the most satisfying sex life possible. And that is a union indifference between a man and a woman. That's that's really interesting. And I like what you said about the fact that, you know, a lot, a lot of Christians can just be completely critical and condemning of any kind of, of same-sex relationship. But actually, you talked about the fact that there's there's lots of good in same-sex relationships, and it's actually the sexual part that's problematic. Um, how do you think that um, we can encourage people to sort of preserve the good in close same-sex friendships without the kind of the the sort of sex that isn't going to help us flourish and thrive getting in the way. Um, how can we preserve the good in those things? Well, I think one of the things we can do, or the best the best thing we can actually, both within Christian communities but also in wider society, is just get rid of the idea that if two people are close, if two people are good friends, there must be a sexual element to it, mm. and that to have to make that relationship really good, they need to get into bed together. Uh, or that they must be in bed together regularly if they really are that close. I mean, that that is where our society's at. That's often where churches are at. People see same-sex, uh, close same-sex relationship and everybody presumes it, it must be it must be sexual. And sometimes the sort of purity police, particularly within Christian communities, come along and say, oh my goodness, you know, you shouldn't be in that relationship. That relationship worries us because you seem to be quite close to each other and you're two men and all you're two women. Um, you know, you can have beautiful friendships um, where there's no sexual agenda or contact. Um, and actually, they're particularly close because there isn't. Mm. And we need to stop, as it were, looking at a relationship and presuming that it's sexual if it's close. And we need to allow people to enjoy same-sex uh, relationships, uh, friendships um, that are not sexual, whether they're same-sex attracted or not same-sex attracted. Uh, because, you know, one of the beautiful things that God has gifted us um, in his wonderful creation is the gift of friendship. You know, throughout the Bible, same-sex friendships, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, are profiled and commended. In the Proverbs, there's countless encouragements to form really good, close friendships. And then, of course, Jesus himself um, clearly had really good friends, has the 12 disciples, but within the 12 disciples, 
He has a sort of, you know, best friends in, in, in people like John and also friendships with the same sex and the opposite sex. And we need to be encouraging that in our Christian communities and wider society too. Absolutely. I love that phrase you just used, the purity police. I don't think I've ever heard you say that before, but I think it, it's great because actually it can be counterproductive. It can deprive people of the sort of depth of intimacy that actually helps people to flourish and helps people not to be sitting isolated at home, you know, caught up in sexual fantasies because they're deprived of that, you know, legitimate relational um, need being fulfilled. Yeah, and I can remember soon after I was first open, I was first public about my same-sex attraction. I had, you know, friends who used to regularly go away with on holiday, another guy, and he was, you know, he was sort of raised the question: Should we continue to go on holiday together? And that was one of those moments of the purity police, you know, sort of us fearing what people would think of what was happening, mm. and and the danger then of our friendship not having sort of an annual catch-up because we felt that what would people think? And actually, I think we wisely decided at the time we really don't care about what other people think um, who don't know as well. Anybody that knew as well would know that they had nothing to worry about. Um, And that was just the decision we had to make um, at the time. Yeah. I, I think that's great. I mean, obviously, there's there is some wisdom, um, and people that know us well know when we're sort of choosing to to do the right thing or overstep the line. But there will always be people that make the wrong assumptions about us, and we can't we can't have our lives shackled by them. Um, for the very last part, I just wanted to talk about another article that you've written because I th- I love it and I think it's quite. Uh, Possibly controversial. That's very unlikely, Ed. Um, <laughs> and it also involves reading. So um, it's called How Reading Liberally Helps Me. And you talk about reading a range of LGBT books from different perspectives. Um, for some, this is going to set off alarm bells. Um, so I just wondered why it helps you. What do you think it has helped you, particularly in your spiritual life, by reading so widely? Yeah, I suppose for, for years I wouldn't read much from... LGBT novelists or poets or historians or social commentators because I, I I thought oh that would be dangerous for me it'd be full of sort of temptation it'd be unhelpful to me and then a, just a few things sort of persuaded me to sort of to change that and and one was a lot of people say well you know one of your problems Ed is that you don't know how good the alternative lifestyle could be. And I thought, well, you know, there's ways there's ways of, of finding out. One way is to sort of fully embrace it myself, which I wasn't willing to do. But an- another way is to, is to read about the alternative and to consider for myself, actually, whether there was a better way for me to live my life. And so I thought, well, let's let's investigate this and let's read some gay novels and some gay, gay poetry and some of the histories of uh, gay experiences and some of the sort of, yeah, some of the literature that's coming out of the LGBT community just to see whether I am really missing out. And the discovery that, yeah, the discovery was that I'm not missing out. I've yet to find the happy gay novel. Um, so many uh, gay poets did connect with me because there was a shared experience of what it's like, for instance, to be a gay teenager. But as they described, you know, their sexual history and the experiences and the pain that brought, I wasn't there feeling jealous. I was actually feeling mightily relieved. And so often the books that I think were there written perhaps to sort of convert me to acceptance of same-sex sexual relationships actually helped 
bolster where I was coming from as a Christian rather than undermine it. So I can remember reading the first book by a gay man talking about the problems there had been in his sex life because of the lack of sexual difference. And I can remember reading the paragraph and thinking that that can't say what it said it said because <laughs> that is actually evidence for the Christian worldview and that's an encouragement for me to keep sex for the marriage between a man and a woman. So that paragraph can't have meant what it what I've just read. I can remember reading it a number of times and thinking, no, he really... And then realising, no, this was somebody saying this from their personal experience. And then finding that again and again in autobiographic accounts of the lives of gay men and then actually just being encouraged that instead of reading about this alternative lifestyle that I really should be embracing because it was so much better, I thought, hmm, actually, no, this this stuff is encouraging me to live within the Christian worldview and to live within what the Bible teaches and to uh, follow Jesus and live his way. Wow. Um, have you got sort of one or two books that you found particularly helpful? Yeah. And, you know, and as soon as I recommend a book, one of the dangers is, you know, I this will be really unhelpful for some people. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, every emotion I've had when reading some of these books has been pure and godly, but then that's true of, I mean, I've never been completely pure and godly doing anything. But, um, <laughs> you know, let, let's let take one. I mean, one example would be, you know, a, a classic gay novel is Andrew Holleran's Dance from the Dance. And, you know, they're sexually explicit moments. So there's a lot that is really unhelpful. But one of the things he's trying to do is sort of make sense of the sort of pre-HIV AIDS sexual promiscuity in the gay community. And he's trying to think through what it means to be gay. And he's in particular trying to work out why within a lot of gay communities there's an obsession with youth and beauty. Um, and, you know, this novel ends in a really poignant way because people grow old and beauty disappears. And the tragic thing in this novel is that there's no real answer to that sadness that happens to everybody in the end um and you read this novel and um you think oh wouldn't it be wouldn't it be lovely to know that there's a beauty that doesn't fade or wouldn't it be hopeful for uh, many gay people to know that actually um there's a relationship that will stand uh, the test of time and that won't end when your beauty disappears Jesus, obviously, but you know, and wow. there's not a page about Jesus at the end. But as a Jesus follower, that's what I was thinking. And then um, Matthew Todd's Straightjacket is a non-fiction book. It's written by the former editor of Attitude magazine, um, subtitled "Overcoming Society's Legacy of Gay Shame," and it's a massively challenging book as it exposes just the mental health um, crisis within gay communities, the challenges for people like us. Um, and, you know, the answers he comes up with are not Christian answers. He doesn't say become, you know, follow Jesus and your shame will disappear. Um, and actually, you know, he blames a lot of shame on people um, like us. But actually, again, it just realised that experience of shame that most gay people I've come across have been through um, are there. Um, how do we take away that shame? Well, turns out... We, we were told that the shame would go when society fully accepted same-sex relationships. For some reason, it hasn't disappeared. Why is shame clinging to us? How can shame go? Well, Christian testimony is that shame is only diluted, only disappears in a relationship mm -hmm. with Jesus. Mm 
So basically, unexpected, but I mean, nobody, you know, both those authors, Andrew Holleran and Matthew Todd, would be appalled to hear that their book, <laughs> their books pointed me to Jesus, but they did. Wow. <laughs> and they've now appeared on a Christian podcast. So. <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned briefly that obviously we need to be discerning and um, this sort of approach might not be helpful for people at different stages in their, their Christian journey. Just very briefly, how, how do we kind of keep ourselves accountable, make sure that we're making good decisions about what we read, what we listen to, what we consume? Yeah, I think, you know, we've got to watch uh, mixed motives. Uh, some people can, you know, read this stuff and, you know, it will have an impact, but not a damaging impact. Others, it would just be too damaging. It would be too triggering and just got to be sensible about that and talk to others uh, about that. Um, and yeah, I'd, and then also just need to balance it out. I find that, you know, if I was own, when I'm own, then when there've been times when I've read too much stuff, it has been encouraging the ways I described. It also has been tricky in the ways uh, I've described. And I just need to balance it out uh, with other stuff. So, you know, too many gay novels without a bit of balancing out from P.G. Woodhouse. And, you know, <laughs> that's a bit of uh, or Barbara Pym or just or just something that's not intense and is actually funny and raises a smile, you know, is what I need to do as well as, you know, balancing it out with God's words and uh, Christian authors too. Fabulous. Thanks ever so much, Ed. That is a very interesting and helpful insight into your brain and your spiritual journey. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid that's all that we've got uh, time for today, but I just wanted to point listeners to Ed's two books, uh, The Plausibility Problem and Purposeful Sexuality, which are both excellent. And I've put links in the show notes so you can get hold of a copy for, the, for yourselves. Uh, there's also a link to some films that Ed has featured in, uh, which tell the beautiful story of God's design for sexuality. Thank you so much, Ed, for everything that you shared. And uh, thank you to all our listeners. Do remember to rate and share the podcast if you enjoy it. Uh, tell all your friends um, and uh, hopefully uh, they will benefit from it too. You can check out loads of Ed's writing um, as well as other excellent resources at the Living Out website. That's livingout.org. Bye for now. Bye for now.